You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, so I'm from I'm from New York, uh, and so or from New Jersey. Sorry, I hate the you know, the only place I think worse than Jersey is New York. But uh, I go there to evangelize a lot, uh, so that's the the New York references. Uh, for those who were here this weekend, you got some of the stories of what it's like being an evangelist in New York. If you weren't here, what were you thinking? All right, I'll put it. I'll put a quick plug in before I get started. I thought that was for me. I've been trying to mess with this man all weekend. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll put a plug in for your spring conference. Uh, for those who weren't here this weekend uh, and missed a great conference, I want you to realize that, just saying. But I don't want you to miss the spring conference. You're going to have a great speaker coming in, Jason Lyle. Uh, he is an astrophysicist which sounds really impressive. And then he ends up like handling the Word of God better than most pastors. I'm not going to reference whether he handles it better than Pastor Jim, but almost anyone does. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I love Pastor Jim's preachers, though. But the thing is this, is that uh, the fall, uh, spring conference, you're going to really be blessed with a great speaker. So what I wanted to deal with, to discuss with you today in Sunday school is one of the number one issue that I get whenever I go out to evangelize. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. I'm a Levite, but that's aside. Um, the I could tell you that if you go out and evangelize and talk to just like six, seven people, the question will come up in one way or another, is God's word reliable? Now, it comes up in many different ways. It comes up as, well, the Bible's written by men. Uh, the Bible's been changed. The Bible's full of contradictions. Uh, the Bible's been edited. All these different things that really what they're getting into addressing or attempting to address is that we cannot trust the Bible. That's the thing they want to try to attack. What I want to do is help you guys understand what's called textual criticism. Anyone hear that word before? Okay. Last night. <laughs> Does that word scare anyone? It sounds like this big, heavy word, doesn't it? The reality is that this is something taught, like at, usually at some, sometimes I say at seminary levels. I want to try to take something that's usually kind of complex. If I do my job right, I'll make it simple enough that all of us can not only understand, but use when people challenge us. Sound good? So you, you know the goal of where we're going to try to go. All right. So. We have to realize, first off, the way we got the New Testament. By the way, I should ask, what, what time Sunday school end? Uh, no, I didn't ask when you finish. I mean, when, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So here's, here's what we end up looking at, is that when we look at the way that we got the New Testament, it's different than the Old Testament. Okay? The Old Testament describes were very, very careful in the, in the recording of the, in the copying of Scripture. In other words, if they were going to write the word cat, they would write the letter C, they'd put a tick mark on a, on a wall next to the letter C, they'd write the letter A, put a tick mark next to A, letter T, 
a tick mark next to T, and then they have the word cat, and they'd find the word cat and put a tick mark. Why would they do all that? Because what they had the ability to do is look at their counts when they're done and say, oh, we got, we missed some. Somewhere in the, in here, we missed a letter, we missed a word. If there were three mistakes, three variances that was not allowed to be used in a synagogue. And so the Old Testament is, is really close, and there's very little errors or, or what's called a variant that we have because of the way they went through the copying. Now, a variant, I'll quote Dan Wallace. Dan Wallace defines a variant as a textual variant is simply any difference from a standard text that involves spelling, word order, omissions, additions, substitutions, or a total rewrite of the text. So there's times where you have in the Old Testament some there's a, now I'm drawing a blank on which king, but there's a king who is 40 years old and in Kings, and in Chronicles he's 42 years old. Which is it? Well, one could be rounding up, or one could just be that someone had a textual variant and we, they didn't know which is right. There are a few textual variances in the Old Testament, but there are very few. But in the New Testament we have more. Why? Well, very simply, the New Testament had a message that was so important that they wanted to get that out as fast as they could, as far as they could. And so people sometimes would get sloppy in copying. Have you ever had to like copy something word for word from something else? And, and you're reading and the word the is here and the word the is there and you skip that whole line. Or you're, you're reading it from memory and you remember something over here that said something similar and you're just trying to copy without looking and you write something in that was over here but it wasn't in this part over here. These are the things that the copyist would do. In fact, actually some of our, the best manuscripts that we have in the Greek were written by people that did not know Greek. Sounds strange? Yeah, the reason is because they knew this was God's word and they knew the letters. They didn't know the words so they actually copied letter by letter the way the Old Testament was done. And we could tell which ones didn't know Greek because of the different ways of the writing. It's a very interesting thing that when you study all these manuscripts. Now what you end up seeing is that much of the arguments that people make when it comes to these textual variances come from unbelievers. Uh, one of the biggest names is Bart Ehrman. I don't know if you guys have heard of his name. But he will argue, and, and he's actually going to be accurate with this, that there's over 400,000 variances in the New Testament. That sounds like a big number, doesn't it? Uh, he's actually wrong. It's up to about 500,000. His numbers were in the, you know, in the 80s. And that sounds like a lot, especially when you consider that there's only 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. So the argument he always makes is that there's three times as many variances as there are words. And some of you are going, how do you get that? Well, the, the way that happens is this, is that every time there's a different reading of it, they call that a variant. Now, there's two ways to really count this, in my mind. I think it's a, what they do is an apples to oranges. Either you're going to count every word that has a variant reading. means. So in other words, if, if we read through and we see this a lot, where some, some manuscripts will say, Jesus Christ. Others say the Lord Jesus Christ. Others say Christ Jesus. Some will say Jesus the Lord. Those would be four different variant readings. Which one's right? We may not know. Is the meaning changed any? No, it isn't. But they would count that as four variant readings when there's actually just maybe two or three words that are, have the variants. 
So really what we should do is compare all of the words that have variances to them to the number of words in the New Testament. That would be an apples to apples. What, what they're doing is counting all the words, comparing it to all the different various readings. If you're going to do that, what I think you should do is take that 500,000 variant readings and compare it to all of the words in all of the manuscripts. And we have about, oh, about 500, uh, 500, uh, sorry, 5.5 million words when you count all of the variant readings. So now really the number should be 500,000 to 5.5 million. Now when we look at the number of words that have variances, I actually went through uh, the Greek New Testament looking at every word that we have that has a variant reading. There is about 6,500 words out of 138. So right off the bat, you realize that the that 400,000 sounds big and sounds like we can't possibly have the Bible, like the atheists always say, that we don't know what the actual Bible was because it's changed so much. But now, all of a sudden, we're really dealing with 6,500 words out of 138,000 words. Or we can do it the other way and say there's 500,000 variant readings out of 5.5 million words that we have in the manuscripts. Okay, so you understand those? So really what we're dealing with is about 6,500 words. Now there's three things we want to look at when we look at this subject. One, geography. Two, the number of manuscripts. And three, the dating of the manuscripts. So I want to start with geography because it's the easiest to understand. So if I am, uh, I have the uh, scripture, I have the, you know, maybe I just got the letter uh, of Philemon from Paul and this is scripture, and I want to get this out to as many people as possible. So I'm going to make copies of it. But the quickest way for me to do this is maybe if I take this letter and I make 10 copies, I give it to 10 people, and they go to different areas, they make 10 copies, and so on and so on. Because this is how we had the scriptures done. So what ends up happening is if I go to a certain area, if I send one letter to France, and the person in France, in his copy, I switched to word ordering. Instead of saying Jesus Christ, I said Christ Jesus. And everywhere in France, you see the, the wording saying it that way. When we compare it to the rest of the manuscripts we have everywhere else in the world, we realize that someone in France had a bad copy or was copying something that had the word ordering reversed. You see, so when we look at the geography, we can sometimes get back to, okay, it's just this area, it's isolated to this area, that's probably where things changed. And we, and we define what's called text families or manuscript families based on, on geography and these variances that we end up seeing because of the fact that we see one group of them that will have the same copy over and over and over, the same variant. So the geography helps us. Oh, we're going to get to that. It's going to be way less than that. No. That actually is a, an argument that was proposed by Norman Geisler. So the, the question was, if you have 50 variances... The, the 50 manuscripts that have one variant, 
here 50 manuscripts that have this another variant, but there's, they're all the same within those 50, and then another one that only has one, that that'd be 101 variances. Norman Geisler made that argument. He was incorrect. He, he didn't, he, I mean, this isn't his, his expertise. Um, Dan Wallace has an article on that explaining why Geisler's wrong. That's not how they, they count it. It's actually what they do is they count the number of wordings that they have. So in other words, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus, Jesus the Lord would be four different readings, even though it's the same exact, you know, verse. So you could have, so what they're comparing is four readings for two words. Okay. So we would say, well, we should compare the two words to the number of words in the, in the Greek New Testament, not the four readings to the number of words. If we're going to count those, each of those variant readings, we should compare it to all of the words in all of the manuscripts. Okay. And so when we look at this, I first need to, um, well, let, let me give you, uh, one thing is that a lot of what this is based on, if you follow any of the liberal scholars, they base this on something I mentioned yesterday at the conference on Q. So who's heard of Q before? Everyone who was at the conference yesterday should have their hand up. <laughs> Man, I even set it up for you and said I mentioned it yesterday. We used to have a song director. He'd, he would sing a song. He'd have a new song. We'd sing it. He'd be like, how many of you have heard that before? No one's hand went up. You're like, we just sang it. Where were you? I'm wondering that now. All right. So the Q stands for Coelum. Coelum is this fictional document that supposedly existed before the Gospel of Mark. By the way, I believe Matthew was the first gospel written. I can make an argument for that, but many people think it's Mark. And why? Because Mark is the shortest, and it is the one that has the least references to Jesus Christ as God. So the argument that the liberals make is that there was this document called Q for a source document, and it didn't mention Jesus as God at all. And then Mark wrote based off of that, but he embellished a little bit and kind of made it seem like Jesus was God, a little bit. And then Matthew and Luke took Mark and Q and expanded it and made Jesus a little bit more of God. And then John wrote, and it's like completely God. Now, by the way, if you want to see how they don't really think through things. I'm working on a book on the deity of Christ. The book of Mark is 37% of the book of Mark refers to Jesus Christ as deity, whether directly or indirectly. It doesn't sound like he just weaved it in a little bit. A third of the book? Yeah. Uh, so what you end up seeing is that they base this on this document Q. And, and let, me, um, you know, let me read from the book Zealot, the Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth by Riza Allen. Aslan was a New York Times bestseller author. Basically, if you write something against Christianity or the Bible, you become a New York Times bestseller. He wrote that his whole book is based on the fact that we can't know what the original documents are because we don't have Q. And we, we you know, we, everything that he's arguing for is based on this document Q. The mistake he made is in his introduction, he wrote this, quote, Although we, no uh, although we no longer have any physical copies of this document, we can infer its context, contents by compiling the various verses of Matthew and Luke share in common and do not appear in Mark, unquote. Did you get that first part? Although we no longer have any physical copies, 
when I teach logic, I would immediately point out there, look at the premise. You'd first have to have a physical copy, some evidence to know there was once a physical copy. The reason we don't have any physical copies of Q is because Q never existed. I would call this a fairy tale. They base an entire book, an entire line of thinking of trying to discredit the Bible based on something they do not have. And so the, right off the bat, whenever these people start speaking, and they're, they're, they're going to sound really authoritative, and they talk about this document, and it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't exist. There's no evidence it ever existed. There's no document that even refers to Q. This is something that was developed in the last 50 years. That's the first we hear about the fact that there might be this document out there. I mean, if they found a copy of it, maybe I'd be impressed. But the reality is, is that there is no copy of this. And so they build a whole theory of doctrine based on something that doesn't exist. They have no foundation for it. So it's one of the things to always keep in mind when you, when you talk to people who are challenging us with the Bible. So that's one myth I wanted to, to dispel. Second myth. The way most people think that we got the Bible is the telephone game. You guys remember playing the telephone game? Telephone game where you, 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 you whisper something into one person's ear. So I whisper into Ed's ear. And Ed, because he's a mischievous kind of character, whispers it into his wife's ear but messes up on purpose because that is the fun of that game, right? And then she whispers. And by the time we get all the way over here to Rich, it's totally different. Because that's the fun of the game is to purposely mess it up, right? Well, huh? Yes, standard gossip. <laughs> that's how gossip works, exactly. You know, kind of like when Rich was, you know, when, when Pastor Jim was talking about what Rich did to me, I think that story got bigger and bigger as he told it each time. <laughs> it was a great prank. You had to be here to, even though I was the one received, at the butt of the joke, it was hilarious. You'll have to ask Pastor Jim for the, uh, <laughs> for the video. <laughs> now everyone's going to be coming over. So, uh, so here's the thing. When we look at the telephone game, there's two things with telephone game. One, it's based on audio, right? It's not written, it's audio. Second, it's assuming that it goes from one person to one person to one person to one person, and there's no way to verify with what the original said or what the other people in line said. In a, a written document, Neither of those work. Why? Because if I write something, and I give it to Rich, Rich writes it, he gives it to Justin, Justin can compare to what I wrote, because we have the written original. Not only that, but because, not only can he do the comparison in that way, but it wasn't the fact that I was writing just to Rich. I wrote to Rich, I wrote to Josh, I wrote to Thomas, I wrote to Jim, all at once, and then they all made copies. See, so I didn't just write once, I wrote the same document many times and gave it to many people. See, so a telephone game doesn't work. And this is what most people end up thinking how we got the Bible. And they think that one person wrote it and there was only one copy, and he handed it to another person who, who kind of made a mistake somewhere, and another person who made a mistake, and like the other copies must have disappeared. Well, that'd be a problem, because we have about 8,000 Greek manuscripts of the scriptures today. We talked about the geography, now let's get into the number of manuscripts and the dating. Why is that important? Well, if you only have one copy of something, let's take a look at one. 
the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Anyone ever hear of that one? Anyone ever read about that one? Anyone read the Da Vinci Code? The Da Vinci Code is based off the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was written in French. Therefore, it's not the original document if it's back in the time of Jesus, because French wasn't around back then. So it was written in French, and what we know is that there's more missing of that book than we actually have of the book. But here's the thing, we have one copy. That's it. So how do we know what the original said? You don't, because you have nothing to compare to. The more copies you have, the more you have that you can compare to. And you can start to see where there's word ordering differences, where there's spelling mistakes, where there's these different things. We even have passages of scripture that you'll see, maybe it'll be here, maybe it'll be here, maybe it's over here. We have, we have some passages that kind of float around where people put that in. And, and so we, we end up having that, but we can only tell that because we have so many copies, so many manuscripts. Having so many manuscripts is good. Why? Because we have more to compare to. We have nothing to compare the Gospel of Mary Magdalene to. Because it's the only copy we have. And people have written books now. <laughs> and, and there's many people that now believe that Jesus was mar married to Mary Magdalene based off of a document that they would say is a, uh, from the first century, which is really hard to prove. And what was the Gospel of Mary Magdalene used for? Well, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene was used to say that the French emperors were descendants of Jesus Christ, and therefore they were divine and can't be questioned. That was when they were arguing with the Catholic Church, and they had a pope who said he was superior, and the emperor wanted to say he was superior, and he, he, we know that he was using that as a justification. It's always good if you can make up a story to say that you trump the pope. Now, I can easily say that I trump the pope, and so can many of you. We have the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't. Um, oops, I just got myself in trouble. So here's the thing. When we look at those, because we have so many of the different copies of manuscripts, we, start to can, we can start to put all of these variances into categories. Okay? There's two categories that we put them into. Okay? One is going to be, is it a meaningful change? In other words, the meaning changed. A second is, is it a viable? Viable means can we get back to the original or not? If it's viable, we can't get back to the original. In other words, the case I, I'm, I'm giving you, I use one example over and over just so that we can use the same example. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Which one's right? We may not know. We may not be able to get back to the original. Has the meaning changed? No. Now, there are some cases where meaning doesn't change any, but we can get back to the original. Spelling errors are big for that. You know, if I misspell cat and I add a T on, or an E on the end, that may be. In fact, if I put the words, because remember, in in the original writings, there wasn't punctuation and there wasn't spacing in, in some of it. So if I put the words G-O-D-S, sorry, G-O-D-I-S-N-O-W-H-E-R-E, -E, which some of you are trying to figure this out. Say again. God is what? God is here. God is nowhere is one way. 
God is here is another way. It all depends where you put the space. Now, God is here and God is nowhere. Those are very different meanings, aren't they? We can often get back to the original on that from reading the context and reading the, and, and looking at when they, we started putting spacing in. But context provides us what the original was because that's how they would read it. They would, the context would define how that was spelled. Okay? So let's break these down now. We have those two categories. Is it viable? And is it meaningful? So, in the area where it is, uh, maybe meaningful or not, but not vi- but not viable meaning, we can get back to the original. Okay, spelling errors, things like that. 75% of all of these variants we talk about fit in this category where we can get back to the original meaning. Or sorry, the original text. 75% are spelling errors and punctuation. Nope, I'm not there yet. Just via, just whether it's viable, just whether we can get back to the original. So 75% are viable. So, sorry, 75% are, are non-viable, meaning we can, we, they're, we can get back to the original. So not viable means we can get back to the original. 75% of them are just spelling and punctuation. Why is that interesting? Because there was no punctuation until 800 so when they, when they count the punctuations as a variant, I'm going, that shouldn't count. <laughs> Not if you're trying to say what's the original. I kind of think that's to bolster up the number of 500,000 <laughs> to make it sound bigger. And by the way, uh, for folks who are, who are trying to take notes and, and try to get all this, if you, in the back is a book that I wrote called What Do We Believe? What I'm giving you is chapter two. Not all of it, uh, but I have charts in there that explain some of this in more detail. So the first category is 75%. Remember those six, that's 6,500 words? 75% of them are spelling errors, punctuation errors, things like that. We can easily get back to the original of the text. The second category, largest category, is 19%. And those are ones that are not meaningful, but viable. In other words, the meaning hasn't changed any, but we can get back, sorry, the, 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 the meaning hasn't changed, but we can't get back to the original text. So this would be the Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus our Lord. We don't know which is right. We can't get back to the original text, meaning hasn't changed any. That's 19%. Now those we're not so concerned with because the meaning hasn't changed. So the first group, 75%, we can get back to the original, not an issue. The next 19%, we can, we, we can't get back to the original, but no meaning has changed. Third category is 5%, and those are the ones that are meaningful, but not viable. In other words, the meaning changes, but we can get back to that original, so again, we don't care. So we're dealing with, and this is the conservative number, 1% that are both meaningful, that the meaning changed, viable, meaning we can't get back to the original. 1%. In fact, in a class I had with, uh, with Professor Daniel Walsh, I asked him, is that the most accurate number? He said, no. This is the most conservative number we give so that the critics don't criticize us. The more accurate number is one-fifth of 1% that are in this category 
of meaningful and viable. In other words, if you use the 1% and we take the 1% to those six, the, the 6,500 words, technically it's 6,577 words, and now you, we take that and we cut that down, we're dealing with about 66 meaningful words that we can't get back to the original. Now it doesn't sound so bad, does it? Now we compare that to the 138,162 words that we have in the Greek New Testament, and you were saying you thought it was about 5%. Well, actually, it comes to about 0.0476%. In other words, if you use the more conservative number, our Bible is 99.95% accurate. I will put that number up to CNN any day of the week. Don't we wish that CNN was that accurate? <laughs> and they criticize us. Now, let me give you, if you're going to write a book and, and it becomes a New York Times bestseller, you'd think you'd put your best arguments forward, right? be a good thing to do, especially when you redo the book in paperback form. You want to make sure your arguments are really solid. Well, Bart Ehrman did that. Bart Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, became a New York Times bestseller because, well, it criticized the Bible. That's how you become a New York Times bestseller. And so he put out this argument that we cannot know what the original Bible said. So here's his best argument. You ready for this? Some of you were here yesterday and you know what's coming. The rest of you better hold on to your seats because this is going to rock your faith. I'm just telling you. The, the best argument he has for that 1% category are that there are some manuscripts that say that Jesus Christ was a carpenter and there's others that say he was the son of a carpenter. <laughs> I mean, that rocked your world, didn't it? Can you think of a single doctrine based on Jesus being a carpenter? Not a single one. It, I mean, both could be true. He could have been the son of a carpenter and a carpenter. But the reality, Bart Ehrman made a big mistake. He corrected it in the second edition of his, of his, of his paperback. But the New York Times, when you write a New York Times bestseller, the publisher wants to get it out there. So he did a paperback version. They asked him to write a little bit more. He wrote an epilogue. He made this mistake. In the first printing, of his paperback edition, Bart Ehrman admitted that there was not a single Christian doctrine that is affected by any of these variances. He quickly took that out of the second one. Why? Because every time he's debated Dan Wallace, all three times they've debated, Dan Wallace ends the debate with that quote. <laughs> because he's trying to say Christianity is completely false because it can't, it's based on a lie that they can't figure out. You see, we can do this because of the number of copies of manuscripts that we have. Those copies are really good. You know why? People used to say the Gospel of John was written much, much later. I mean, you needed time to embellish that Jesus was God. And then someone was, you know, in Egypt and going through a mummy's tomb. And, you know, they, they kind of used the garbage paper to, to mummify people. And here this guy finds something, and it looks a little familiar. It's, it's Greek. Oh, what do you know? It's called P52. You can look it up. One of the oldest manuscripts we have, the Gospel of John. Portion of the Gospel of John. All of a sudden, all the liberals that said the Gospel of John was really written in the 300s suddenly had a problem. Because we have the Gospel of John in about 125 A.D. 
We have hundreds of manuscripts before 300 A.D., before the Council of Nicaea, when supposedly the Catholic Church gave us the Bible. Now, the Catholic Church would say that the manuscripts existed before that, but the liberals say that the Catholic Church wrote it down in the 300s. And yet we have hundreds of copies before that. You see, these manuscripts help us to, to dispel these, these lies that people tell. Although they have the advantage, they tell it much louder than us and much more often than us, so people believe that. When you're I'm assuming you don't break this all down to him, but there is a summarized way that you give this to somebody to... Actually, no. I actually do. You know why, you know why I go through the... I, I will spend sometimes 15, 20 minutes going through this for a reason. They think that they've, there's all these books that explain this stuff. There's, unfortunately, there's no way to just say, okay, this is what it is, because they're not going to believe it. I have to give them all the ways to, to, to correct their thinking. They, they just think it's a telephone game because that's what they know. They don't know how the Bible was copied. You see, you actually have to walk them through a lot of this. But the, the fact is, they don't know any of it typically, so they let you go through it. Now, there is, I mean, I gave the, the one example yesterday of how you could go through some of it, right, with the guy from Montclair State that said that the Bible was copied, or it was edited in the 1500s, that they, cop, they grabbed all the copies, they changed it, and then they put them back. I just used another example to say, okay, how do you do that? The, it, oh, yeah. A lot of people, because they didn't know any of this. And when, when you start going through stuff like this, they suddenly realize you're more of an expert than them. You know? Now, I'll sometimes say to someone, when they, when they bring up some of this stuff, they'll be like, well, you know, it's been copied. I'm like, oh, you're, you have a background in textual criticism. They go, what? I said, well, that's what you're talking about, textual criticism. You have a degree in it like, you know, I do, right? And they go, no. Right? Well, Okay, in seminary, I had to study this stuff. Did you put any study in? Well, I read Bart Ehrman. Now, Bart Ehrman is, is a serious scholar. But here's the thing with Bart Ehrman. There's a thing that everybody knows with Bart Ehrman that, that studies this area. When Bart Ehrman is quoting something and giving his, his the source material, he has the footnotes, he's usually pretty good. When he writes scholarly documents, he's usually pretty good. When he writes them for the masses, he's usually pretty bad. Okay. He, he writes stuff and he says, he'll say things that are true over here. He'll say, well, the, the guys that were copying were sloppy. Therefore, we can't know what the original was. Well, that's a leap, you know, and he does those leaps all the time in, in his mass writings. So let me finish up really quick with the third thing. So we went through the geography, spent a lot of time with the variances. The third thing is how close it is to the original writing. Because the closer it is to the original, the basically the less time there's going to be for, for changes to occur. Anyone believe that Caesar, that Julius Caesar existed and that he was stabbed in the back and all the things about Caesar? Yeah? Do you know that the closest document we have from the to the writings about Caesar to the time of Caesar is a thousand years? There's a long time for embellishment that could happen there, right? You know how close we have from the original writing of a new, of any New Testament document to the earliest copy, the earliest manuscript? 25 years. And actually, that date may be old. We have recently found a new manuscript that may be, may be within 20 years of its writing. 
It's hard to date some of those. Okay, but it looks like it could have been written within 20 years of its writing. And so the thing is, and there's a whole study that goes into this, but the thing is, the closer it is to the writing, the less chance there was of this embellishment and these editing, these copying mistakes to occur. So we have within 25 years for the New Testament, what's the next closest then? Next closest would be Homer at 500 years. That's the next closest that we have. So you end up seeing that when we look at this, we look at our scriptures and people say it's not reliable. Well, the Bible is the most reliable document in all of ancient history. Whether you look at the number of manuscripts, whether you look at the dating of how close it is in early writings, like I said, we have hundreds of copies within the first hundred years. We don't have that with any other ancient document. We don't even have that with the the Quran, which was 700 AD. We don't even have... you, You know, here's an interesting thing. We have almost as many variances in the Book of Mormon as we do the New Testament, and the Book of Mormon was written after the time of the printing press. I mean, there should be no variances there. I have a book from Sandra Tanner about this thick, and they actually, her and her husband went through and made copies of every single variant in all of the different editions of the Book of Mormon, almost almost 4,000. So so the thing is, what I hope you do is you realize, and, and I mean, you can get the book and read it and get all the information so that you could process it, but I hope that the one thing I hope is that you walk away going, we can really trust the Scriptures. That if you use Dan Wallace's number, it would be 99.98% accurate. That's pretty reliable. And, and to know from someone who is the biggest critic that's an expert in the field admits that there's not a single Christian doctrine affected by any of the variances should give us a confidence that even though there may be these copying errors that occurred when someone made a mistake, it does not affect the doctrine of Christianity. One iota. That was a kind of a pun there. An iota is a letter there. That could have been a variant. So with that, I'm going to close in prayer. Oh, Lord, we are, we're just amazed. Uh, We have your word. You, You never said that you would preserve it word by word, but you did say you would preserve it, that not, uh, that it would be something we can rely on. And you've given us so much information, just a a treasure trove of information when we look at this issue of the reliability of your word, that there is absolutely no reason we should ever question its trustworthiness. In fact, there's no reason anyone should question it. It is the authority we have in our life. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to stand on its firm foundation and proclaim to the world the truths found in your word. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.